Welcome to the Youth Sports Parenting Tribe. I'm your host, Renan Chosa, former tennis player and father of two boys involved in the sport. What can you find here? Thought leaders, psychologists, authors, former athletes, coaches, agents and others share their knowledge and wisdom to help us become super parents. As Jim Rome used to say, for things to change, we have to change. Today, our guest at the tribe is Billy Pate. He is now heading into the 30th season of his college coaching career. He is currently the head coach of Princeton men's tennis team and regarded as one of the most respected and influential leaders in college tennis, underscored by his long history of instilling character-based values in his players. Former ITA board member and world team tennis PR, Billy Pate, welcome to the tribe. Thank you, Hernan. It's great to join you today. I appreciate you uh, making time for me. <laughs> well, the story with Billy started six, seven years ago when, when my son Julian was in his recruiting college path scholarship. And I, I talked to a, a friend in common, Mario Rincon, and he told me two things. The first was to attend a showcase at Miami. And the second thing was talk to Billy Pate. And we start our relationship. And for parents, it's, it's a tough path, you know, because there's a lot of uncertainty. And you said something to me that was very peaceful. You said, there will be a college for your son. And, and yeah, that's what a, a big thing because you're in the middle of the channel and you don't see the light. And, and it was a, a peace of mind for me. And I figured out that you are quite a successful coach, almost 30 years in the business. And the first question for you is, why do you think that you are so successful? What are the things that you do on a daily basis to become successful? Yeah, well, thank you, Hernan. I, I don't know. Those are kind words. I don't know. We certainly had some success. You know, some years as a coach, you're the most critical of yourself. I think all coaches do that. So uh, sometimes it feels like we're not having the success. But I think the number one thing for any coach and, and leader is to appreciate the people they work with or the, in, in this case, the, the athletes that work for the coaches, with the coaches, you know, obviously attracting, you mentioned the recruiting piece, recruiting, identifying good people of character who also are great players. And then, you know, picking the right players that are going to align with the values you have, your coaching philosophy, the university values and mission of the university, the athletic department. As you know, when you went through the recruiting process with your son, it was huge, vast, a lot of different schools. But I think from our end, it's a little simpler only because we do it all the time, but we're trying to by a very specific group of players. And so I think that, that starts with recruiting to be successful, to get the, the best players, of course, but the players that match what your coaching style is, your coaching philosophy. So I think building relationships with coaches, people that are prominent in the tennis industry around the world like yourself, I think never shutting a door on somebody, always listening, always being able to you know, communicate and, and meet people around the world because it is such a global sport. 
that can maybe help you because nobody gets nobody is successful without help, right? And I think acknowledging that. So I think as I tell people, and and Mario is, is he has suggested you contact me. I don't. I certainly don't have all the answers, but what I try to pride myself on doing is finding the answers. So you may ask me something, but I'm going to go find the right people that can give me the answer I need. And I think that's part of anybody in business or athletics being successful. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things of recruiting that we will jump on it later and that nobody is successful without help. And talking about help, for sure, you, you had some mentors in your coaching career. Can you talk about which were your mentors and, and what did you get from them? Yes, yes. Um, so I, I guess my primary mentor would have to be Bobby Bayless. And I, I just, we had dinner with him two weeks ago, he and his wife during Kalamazoo, which as you know, is the USTA Boys Championship. And he was the longtime coach, well, three, three institutions, uh, very famous institutions. He started out at Navy, then he was at MIT, and then Notre Dame, where he finished his career, was there for many years. And I was the assistant to Coach Bayless at Notre Dame and for, for just two years. But they were, I often tell the old players and other people I talk to, young coaches, those were the best two years in my coaching experience, just because I was totally in that growth mindset. And then I had a mentor and Coach Bayless who, who also allowed me freedom to coach the way I wanted to. And we got along incredibly well. He's like a father figure to me. But the best of, you know, the, the best thing about Coach Bayless was, and everybody would say this in college tennis, was he was the most principle-centered coach. He was the, you know, the best ethics in the world. And so he gave a lot of coaches advice. So I sort of learned from him. And again, going back to helping people, he would he would always help young coaches. Even if they weren't going to work with him, he was always on committees or on the ITA board and, and just doing a lot of stuff to help young coaches getting get into tennis and advance. So so that was my primary mentor. And you know, that also being at Notre Dame was really great for me because it put me in a system, a university setting that's similar to Princeton, where I am, where Notre Dame was, it's a very high academic institution. So typically the type of athletes you're getting are more serious athletes because they have to balance the the strong academics and the tennis, which is obviously what we do at Princeton. But I, it's kind of interesting that that was 2020, sorry, 2000 to 2002. And here we are, you know, 23 years later and not that a lot has changed in the world, but that's that remains constant. And again, recruiting the right people. But going back to that experience I had over 20 years ago really helped me to be at Princeton. So that, that was a big piece. But I would say Bobby was the key mentor in my life. And, you know, I had a, a very successful coach I played for at Mississippi State, Andy Jackson, who just uh, got back in. He's He was actually a young head coach when I had him and a very intense coach. And you always pick up certain things in, in his style of professionalism and the way he approached kind of a, a, going against your opponent. He was one of these guys who wanted to know everything about an opponent in preparation. So I learned a lot about, you know, how – I mean, I think Coach Jackson looked at it. He was a descendant of a very famous general in U.S. history in, in, in battle. So he understood the, the battle, if you will. So you, you, you pick up a lot of different things from mentors along the way. And then, of course, you have to have your own coaching style and coaching philosophy. And you take sort of the best of everything you've learned, hopefully, and put it in your own style. 
Yeah, according to what you say, Bobby, build your foundations with the giving and receiving method and Jackson, all the, the preparation. And, and talking about the preparation, let's jump into the recruiting process because maybe it's one of the most important things because when you start a season and you don't have the right team, there's not much that you can do. So how, how is your, your recruiting process system? Yeah, so um, again, for us, it's more of a sort of a, a niche type of recruiting because, number one, the, the students we recruit have to be outstanding academically. So it sort of limits the field. And I think for me, I, you know, again, working, I, as I tell young coaches, you want to try to, when you get into this, you want to try to work somewhere that matches, just like the recruit, it matches as a coach what the university represents. So understanding that, you know, we are recruiting a very uh, specific group of players. Now, once we get to that group of players, it may be only 30 or 40 players for a year that we examine, we, we evaluate, and we get it down to maybe three spots, right? But really, it's, I would say, even for like, we're recruiting for 2025. Now we recruit quite early, the players who just finished 10th grade, because we already know they, you know, they're academic, because they've already spent two years in high school. If they're successful to that point, then we, we will continue to recruit them. And obviously, they have to be a very high tennis standard as well. But I think once you get that group, then it's a smaller group of players that may be whittled down. I, I tell this to junior groups all the time when I'm talking to kids that are looking for colleges or just to be a successful tennis player and asking about our recruiting process. When we go to a tournament, we may start with a big list, but it's interesting how it, it, it really whittles down quickly because I'll tell the kids, well, I'll see a player throw a racket over the fence and I'll mark him off the list, right? He's, he's no longer considered for us. I'll see maybe you're in the parking lot after the match and you'll see a player maybe smart off to his mother or father or coach and I'll see that like, off the list. So I think the, the recruiting is not so much uh, accumulating player. We always think of like you're, you're bringing player, but you're also at the same time, you're reducing the number of players to get the specific ones you want. And it's not, it's not a perfect science clearly. And every year you have a different group of players that offer different things. So I think, you know, the best coaches that I've seen in college tennis have, they've been great recruiters, but they've also had, the, the good players they get recruit for the institution. So if, if you're from Argentina, for instance, and you have a few players, like we played Utah last year, they had some very, very strong Argentinian players, and I'm sure they helped get the other one there. And I'm sure that's the same. So you, once you get a certain culture, you have players that can help with that process. So when they come to campus, they really help. You know, the worst thing is when you have players that are selfish and don't really care about helping, you know, maybe they'll be graduated by the time this guy comes, so they don't care. But if there's pride in the program and the institution, then they will help. Yeah, it looks like you have a fine-tuned process. And I watch your roster, and half of the roster is our international students. So what do international students add to the program? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, we I think this year we'll have more international players than we've had. Traditionally, I, I would say at Princeton, because it's a very high standard academically, even for the, the best American students, it, it can be limiting. But we've 
been successful. I think a few things have happened, you know, with the Ivy League has become more prominent around the world. I mean, obviously, it's always been a a great brand academically, but I think people now see that you can play the highest level of tennis and, and even pursue a professional career after Ivy League. But I think that to answer your question, what the international players bring, I, I always feel like they may be, not to say there aren't Americans that travel a lot because we've seen a lot of Americans play ITF, but I do think the international players have experienced a lot of different cultures. Maybe the U.S. players haven't. They probably speak many languages or, you know, a few languages. I mean, obviously, if you're a non-native English speaker, you still you need to speak very good English to, you know, score well in the SAT and, of course, grading. So and you have to be able to write and speak very well at Princeton. So to me, that gets some of the best players in certain countries academically. So some of the players we've had are at the very highest end academically, as well as being the best players in the country. You remember, we talked a lot about Axel Geller. That's a great example. We recruited Axel. We, we were pretty close to having him come to Princeton. And, but, but he was a very unique player and, 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 and person. Because I remember when uh, one of our deans met with him, they asked what his goals were outside of tennis. And Axel said, well, after I graduate with a degree in economics, I'd like to try to play on the tour, but after that, I want to come back to my home country and help repair the economic system. It was a very mature and ambitious answer from a young. So again, you're, you're getting people like Axel. He of course ended up at Stanford and had a great career and is working now from what I understand, a very good job. So he didn't choose to go pro, but that shouldn't be criticized because even though he got to one ITF, he's got a great degree. He's doing what he, I think he loves and he's a very talented individual. So that's a good example of somebody who was, he got to one in the world in, in junior tennis, but also <laughs> was maybe among the very, very best students. And so that's hard to come by, but that's a little bit of what we are looking for. And that's what some of these students can bring a different global perspective. And I, I know that when we talk about diversity a lot in the U.S., you know, we're talking about a lot of different things. It could be people of color. It could be people that just come from a different walk of life than have normally come to a place like Princeton. And we're really celebrating that diversity. And that could also be international uh, students as well. And, of course, we attract people from all over, over the globe. And the more we can get the word out that this is a great place, you just have to be preparing early in your high school career to have an opportunity to do this. But they really add a unique flavor. And we've seen them, some of our best players and some of our best people. Yeah, I remember our conversation about Axel. You were you were hard there trying to recruit him and trying to to make things happen. Unfortunately, it didn't come that way. But anyway, all, all the college coaches are, are kind of fascinated about playing matches, and they all want you to play matches during the off-season. And what about if there's some room for development, for player development? In, in the college path? What do you think about? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, number one, I, you saw it with Wimbledon and you saw it with, um, you see it this week with the U.S. Open. If you follow a lot of the college tennis graphics on social media, you'll see the number of players on the men and women that played college tennis. So number one, the, as we say in America, proof is in the pudding, sort of. It's, you're starting to see a huge trend toward 
players going to college and and still pursuing the uh, pro tour. You know, I think for the for the men, it's been a little bit somewhat of an easier sell because years ago, eight nine years ago, we discovered that the top 100 ATP players, the average age is 26, 27. I think it's 27. So why not go to college? So John Isner was one of the guys that. I think in all four years, and then obviously this is his last tournament as we speak uh, during the U.S. Open, but he's a guy that has really celebrated his college experience, and it really helped him mature physically, mentally. He needed that. I think all players, I mean, very few players at 17, 18 years old are ready to take on the tour. Alcarez was a, an example, of course. Yes, he should go. And I think that is a unique example, but I think most players should pursue, and, and to answer your question specifically, the player development profiles that each college coach has, we're always talking, when we recruit at a high level, well, the first question a player is going to ask is, how are you going to help me become a professional? And, and, and because a certain level of ranking, you know, say an ITF player top 50 in the world, that naturally they have that on their mind, that they could play professional tennis or want to play professional tennis. So we all we we're, that's aligned with our goals. We want them to be the very very best player they can be. So we 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 focus on that as a goal. But obviously, if more the process part of the goal is how do we make them a greatest the greatest player they can be, you know, the best version of themselves. And and if they maximize that, that's the best we can do. And then if they make it to the tour, great. If they get a great degree and maybe try the tour, but it doesn't work out, but they still land a good job, that's still a great success story. But we want that ambition. And and so in the summers that we don't have summer school at Princeton, it's very unique. But the good part is they can be away for three months training and playing. We can show up at tournaments. We can support that. If they're on campus, we can work with them specifically. Some colleges, of course, have want some of their players to be on campus for maybe half the summer so the coaches can work with them individually and they can be in the gym and working with the strength coach. So those are ways. Obviously, there there are opportunities where you can play professional events even while you're in college. We've had players play Davis Cup while they're here at Princeton. So we, we want to do everything with, within our power to, to support their dream of playing professional. Again, the good news is college tennis has become so strong that just playing the college tournaments at the highest level will help that. And so now the, there's also, and I'm not sure if you've looked at this closely, with WTN has really become a big factor. I believe the with the ITF, they've, they're part of – 170, 180 countries now that have endorsed the world tennis number. The, the reason I bring this up is the world tennis number will be a currency for getting into futures or challengers. Okay. So, so you don't have to have this pressure for nine months. If somebody comes to a U.S. college where they're only playing college events, maybe they're not, you know, maintaining their points on the tour. Now the WTN can be an access point to get into tournaments because that moves you up the acceptance list. So there's not that pressure to just have ATP points. So, and then I don't know if you saw the news last year, we were really happy that we are able to implement a new policy for college tennis with the ATP, where the top 20 players at the end of the year will gain wall cards to futures and challengers. So you're seeing a lot of connectivity between the USTA, which obviously governs, governs U S tennis and the ITF is really behind this WTN. 
and, and collaborating with the ITA, which governs college tennis. So we're really working closely with all that. And that, so that helps these players progress to the pro tour if that's what they want. Yeah, that's a great news for, for college players and, and to make it more competitive. And I want to ask you a question because the college format, you know, the competition between teams is very attractive. Six doubles, you don't warm up, then six singles. And how do you handle that coaching strategy with six points at the same time? What do you do? Yeah. Well, I, I again, I just like the recruiting. I try to make it a little simpler because you can be overwhelmed, you know, with too many. I'm, I'm one of these guys that have had too many thoughts in my head. You know, I get confused. I, I need to just kind of focus on the task at hand. Everybody has a different style. But, you know, to that end, we and I think most top programs now have three coaches. So, in fact, the NCAA just endorsed a new policy allowing that. So we've always had two paid coaches that were employed by the university. We could always have a volunteer coach, which is a non-paid coach, but maybe they would make money teaching. And so we've always had a very good volunteer coach. Now that volunteer coach has been can transition to a, a full-time role. So we were able to do that this year in the first year. So, But the point is we've always had three coaches. So if you have six singles, I would take two courts. Depending on the way the facility is laid out, and some could be laid out a little differently where the numbers play, I would get with my assistant coaches and we decide who we want to take on a given day. And we may rotate that or we may be very close with one guy. One guy likes to have one of us on court. I tend to be a little bit calmer on court. My assistants can be a little bit more energetic and fiery. So if maybe I need to just be the calming influence, I can go to that court and talk the guy off the, the ledge, so to speak. And then my assistants, if they need, you know, fire somebody up more energetic, that, that, that's probably typical of guys that after you've coached a long time, you know, that's, there aren't some older fiery coaches, but yeah. So I think we, we try to examine it that way. Another point you made about the doubles and we, we start with no warm up. We obviously warm up for an hour before we get to a We, we actually get to the court an hour and a half before any match in 30 minutes because gripping the rackets, going to the restroom, checking either all their equipment, and, and then maybe they have to meet with an athletic trainer who if they have a maybe a slight injury or just need to warm up more with the stretching. So we dance, we do the dynamic warm-up, and then we hit a lot. So a lot of preparation to get into the doubles, which you pointed out is, you know, one set, no ad. And so, and it's because it's one set, and especially if we're indoors in the winter, you know, here in Princeton, where it, it you know, indoors, we play a lot of indoor tennis and it's fast men serving indoors and, and one set. So if you get broken your first game, it's very hard to recover. So the strategy there is to have them sweating when they walk on the court. So the warm up can be quite intense right before. And then because you have no warm up and you go right into serving or returning. So that first game is crucial and just at least holding serve and, and then giving yourself a chance to, to maybe break at some point. So we, we really look at being warm when we walk on the court. That's, that's the key thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's preparation like Coach Jackson taught you. And I have a question that happens of a thing that happened this year. You know, Ben Shelton is being coached by, by his dad, Brian Shelton who quit his position at the University of Florida to coach his son. What are your thoughts about, about that move? Yeah, that was fun. I watched Ben's match yesterday, and I saw Brian in, in attendance. Brian, of course, is a, is a great friend and just a really class guy. And, you know, I think it's one of those situations in life where, 
he had done it for a long time. Before that, he was a women's coach at Georgia Tech and won a national title. So I believe he might be the only coach to win a national title on the women's side and the men's side. And, of course, Brian was a great player in his own right, having played all the slams and was a top 50 ATP player, I believe. And, you know, having that experience and then having, you know, where he was in his career, he'd sort of reached the mountaintop in a way. And I think, you know, there's an opportunity as a, as a father, as a, you know, and having a son who's doing well. And, you know, his son really needed to go pro almost. He, but it's a good example, too, of somebody who, you know, was a highly recruited player, but probably when he was 17, not everybody was saying, oh, he's going to be top 50 in the world. But he, he blossomed very quickly in a year or two at Florida. And I just think his dad knew that it was time. I think Ben knew it was time to go pro. Obviously a very dynamic kid, great personality, great smile. So he's marketable. I think, you know, Brian saw all this and just said, you know, I want to spend time with my son. I, it might be distracting if I'm coaching my team and I really want to be on the tour of my son. And I'm sure Ben probably trusts his father more than anybody as a coach. So I think it's a good relationship. And of course, Brian could always come back in a few years if he, if, you know, if he gets to a point and Ben maybe takes on another coach or, you know, um, or maybe stops playing. I, I'm sure Brian could always come back. But I think spending time with family, I think that was a very, you know, unselfish choice by him to put family first. Yeah, uh, I watched Ben at the Madrid Open, the Caja Magica, and his serve was outstanding. He has a, a, a very American serve, very, very powerful. And, and in tennis, you know, you have some chances. I, I think it's open right now, and he's right there in the door, you know. And there's no a clear leadership right now. There are many American players like Taylor Fritz, CFO, that maybe they can, they can lead the tour. And it's a, it's a good opportunity for, for tennis players right now. And, and switching your, your, your interest, because last Christmas, I, my, in fact, my, my wife is from Mendoza and we spent Christmas there and it's, it's named after city of wines. And I know that you are a big fan of winery and all that kind of stuff. And, and when it, 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 be, it begins and, and how is it going? Oh, wow. We did switch gears there. <laughs> One of my other <laughs> favorite topics. Yeah. So, well, you mentioned Mendoza and that's on my bucket list of places to, to visit because obviously it's a very famous wine growing region. You guys are known for especially the Malbecs doing a lot of other great stuff, of course. And yeah, I, I started, I guess I was a, a foodie before into wine. I, I really like good food, but you know, I was I was into craft beer about 15 years ago, the very nice, you know, craft beer. Mostly um, the U.S. has now caught up the world in beer, too. It, back, I think, 15, 20 years ago, it was just starting with these craft breweries. Now you see breweries everywhere in America. And I think American beer making has become very, very successful. But but at the same time, it didn't pair well with food as much, you know, where I think if you, you know, give me give me a dish of you could say this type of food, duck or, you know, chicken, whatever, you know, okay, this will pair, this will pair, you know, so but with beer, you can't really do that so much. So I just felt like it was a much more polished approach to eating and fine dining to have the, the wine, but then the wine became so interesting because every bottle you open, 
is unique, even if it's the same vintage, the same bottle, basically, on the same case, you can open two side by side of the same bottle and they could be a little bit different. And I think that's the surprise and that's what's unique about it. So you, and that, you know, I've studied it enough now where if you look at the world leaders of wine, the top sommeliers, the master, master sommeliers around the world, they, they will tell you they're learning new stuff every day. The very top. And it's just like a pro athlete. They're, they're discovering new approaches. So it's an, and it's a trained gift. It's a lot of people think you have a, a stronger smell and they're called super smellers, but they've shown that the, the top wine people aren't super smellers. It's, it's a learned activity. It's, it's experience, just like hitting a million tennis balls. It's the same thing. So you just, so you start to do blind tasting where you cover the wine, you know, somebody delivers it and you, and it's a fun game to go through and try to see if you can pick the wine region, the year and the grapes involved. And then and if you get experience, you can do this relatively well. So it's, it's fun to do that. <laughs> yeah. It looks like the wine is like a team, you know, it has to match the food, the beer is kind of alone. It's playing a singles. And I, I love some quote that you, you, you said about the college path is a 40 years decision, not a four year decision. And, yes. and can you enlarge on, on such concept? Yeah, sure. So with, you know, especially a place like Princeton, if we're talking to a recruit and they're thinking, why, obviously, why do I go to this school? Why do I go to that school? I think it's very easy. It's, it's I, I tell people, and I'm not being, I don't want to be arrogant at the least bit. I mean, I, I certainly, I went to Mississippi State. I wasn't, we might call that the Princeton of the South, but it's not. But, you know, I could have gone to such a prestigious academic school. But I, I often say, hey, this is like walking into, you know, a Mercedes-Benz dealership or, you know, a BMW. You, you kind of know you're getting a high-quality product. So as a, I don't want to say salesperson, but as somebody selling the university, I don't think I need to go into that much. But what I will say is, like, if you come here, the it is a 40-year decision because everybody's thinking about their first four years when they go to college. But what does that do for them the rest of their career? I think the network is super important. And every, every university, every college in America has a good network. But I think Princeton has a very, very proud network and obviously highly successful network. And the cool thing is you're able to come in as a student and access all of those, you know, alumni from around the world. And they do have a really good career services center. They want to make sure our students are successful as they leave the university. So I'm not saying they're just set up automatically for life. They have to work at it because it is competitive. But the access to this great network is there. And, and even just our tennis players, we have a database. Uh, so we have a mentoring group. So let's say somebody's interested in investment banking. They want to work on Wall Street. It's typical. We have a list of people that have gone into finance and banking. They're high-level people now, but they're always willing to take a call from our, the tennis players because they were a past you know, tennis player. So just in that network alone is good. So when you get down to it, you know, your college will establish, you know, your educational level and obviously what you put into it and then the network and the people you're around for the rest of your life. And it really sets you up for life. And that's what college is for. It's a growth opportunity. But as long as people really are willing to take advantage of that opportunity and grow during college, 
and they'll be successful. And obviously that, and a lot of colleges really can say this. I mean, it's not like we were the only ones that can say this, certainly, but it, I think it does have a huge impact if somebody's able to go to a, a, a school like Princeton and what that does for the rest of their life. Yeah, yeah college is an important life decision. And, and before, last question, can you share where can people find you in social media or which is the best way to access to you? Yeah, so I, you know, what I'm I'm older guy, but I of course have to be on social media as, as I'm sure you've learned to be as well with your business. It, you know, on Instagram is seems to be what a lot of the younger people really like to see with the videos and the pictures. You know, it's it's a little bit more, I guess, it can be formal, but it can be also casual, but it's more fun. So Princeton men's tennis is on Instagram, of course, and I think every college program is. And I think tw Twitter is also, I think maybe for older people, but I think Twitter is a very reliable source for college tennis news. But if you were to follow some of the, the key people that are sort of influencers in the media for college tennis, I think you learn a lot. So if there are future college tennis players out there or parents that are following, if you really want to learn a lot, you can, I mean, now with the, the web and everything and social media, there's so much You can do a little bit of research in 30 minutes and you can learn a lot of information. So it's just really going to the right sites. I mean, there's we're doing different things to promote college tennis with all the streaming. The most matches you can find via streaming, you can watch for free. So I think if you follow that, you, you start to get an idea of, and a flavor for each institution. You get some great videos of facilities. Some do some really good features on inside the program, the locker room. You know, obviously during matches, the excitement of matches. So, yeah, I think following any, I, I would recommend any young player to follow a lot of what's going on in college tennis because a lot's out there and, and it's fun to, to follow that way. Yeah, I agree with you that college matches are, are the most exciting. I've never been so thrilled like in a, in a college match. And the last question is, you have big achievements. You were climbing the coaching ladder, but now Which is your best or biggest goal for the next 10 years? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, in 10 years, that may take me to retirement time, but uh, it's, we'll see. I think, Let's say yeah, five. Yeah, no, no, but I think 10 is good. 10, 10 <laughs> is what I would like to do um, if they allow me to stick around. Uh, but no, I, I think stability is something that's really important to me with a program. In other words, I'd like to have not big swings, you know, and again, I don't want to get too much into outcome. We talk about outcome goals and process goals, but you have to have outcome goals, right? We want to finish with this ranking. We want to win a national title. We want to win an Ivy league title, whatever that is. Again, it goes back to the process of making happy, helping our players be the best version of themselves. If they maximize their ability, then we'll, if we have the right talent, we should be good if we have the right culture. So to me, we've been successful, but we've been a little up and down. COVID had a little bit to do with that, honestly, and it affected a lot of people around the world in a lot of various ways, but it's really just having that sustained success. And I always marvel at any professional sports team or college sports team that wins championships and is able to do it again and again. I think that's the hardest thing. It's just like the players who become number one in the world in pro tennis. It's It's like so hard to maintain because everybody's after you. You get everybody's best game. But that's a compliment. 
and you've got to embrace that challenge. So I think that's one of the keys is to, once you have that level of success, is defining what success means in your program. And again, you want to use some numbers, you want to use rankings, you want to use titles. But I also think there's years when you could be 50, 60 in the country in the rankings, and may, that, that may seem like a down year. But at the same time, you may have maximized the potential of the players. But anyway, more specifically, I think for the next five to 10 years is to have a consistent, consistently successful team that's representing the university. We're building a new facility as we speak. We'll be moving in there next year in new indoor-outdoor together. It's going to be one of the best in the country. So seeing that finish, having that being one of the best facilities in the country, hosting big events, being successful at those events, and then maximizing the players' their abilities and to have the the outcome goals as well, that would be the, the next 10 years. Yeah, it looks like you are a mentor. You are building habits on in your players, and that's a good thing that you want to repeat success. You want to repeat success. You are not for something very big, and then you lose it. And I love that. I want to thank you for this conversation of the tribe, and thanks for for giving to tennis a lot of things and and building new players and building reliable people yeah our pleasure Hernan. thank you so much for having me it's a very good questions and very interesting content my my favorite things to talk about you even worked in the wine <laughs> well thanks bd for for joining the tribe and hope to see you in the near future okay thank you so much Hernan. What a great guest we had today, unique content. If you like it, resonate with it, or find information in this episode valuable, please leave a review or share it with a friend. See you in the next episode.